Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. We'll be in Romans 14 is where we've been. We're really only going to look, I think, at one verse there tonight. We'll look at a good number of other verses, Um, but we've been in this series and I have one more message I really want to preach in this series, but uh, I'm not sure. We've got, uh, we've got a guest speaker next week, and then VBS is a modified service schedule, and then I'm speaking. We have our family vacation, so I don't know that we're going to, I'm going to stretch this series out for another six weeks or whatever it would be, four weeks before we can get to another one. So we may end it right here, but for those that might be joining us or aren't, haven't been here on Sunday nights, uh, we're in a series that I've entitled Sacred Cows, Finding Biblical Unity Even When We Disagree. Agree. And how many of you understand that unity of amongst Christians, unity amongst believers, unity in a church is a biblical thing? We understand that, right? Unity is not a bad word. Sometimes I think people misunderstand unity for compromise. Those are not the same things. And, and to compromise on biblical truth is not a good thing. To find unity, even in maybe some different applications in our lives of biblical truth, is a very, very good thing. Jesus taught his disciples that. They came and they said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in your name. They were doing all these works, but they're not one of us. They don't look like us. They're not part of our group. They're a little different than us. So we told them to stop. And you know what Jesus said? He said, leave them alone. He said, we need them. He said, if they're not against us, they're for us. Paul said, there are some people that preach the gospel, not of sincerity, but trying to hurt me. Paul said, if the gospel be preached, whether in pretense or in truth, I rejoice a spirit of gospel unity. And if you're a Christian for any length of time, if you attend church for any length of time, there will be some things that you will disagree on and disagree with. And I don't have time to give a review of the whole series, but we've been looking in Romans 14. Paul addresses this this specific thing I gave a lot of background last Sunday. That's why our message was like an hour and a half or whatever it was. And I promise I'm not going to be as long this week, so I'm not going to go through all of that. If you've missed any of these, I actually encourage, I don't do this a lot. I'm not like going around telling people, oh, you should listen to my preaching. But I was talking to a couple different families that are walking through some things, not a part of our church in the last week or two. And I said, I'd really encourage you to go listen to that sacred cows message, not because of my thoughts, but because of the biblical truth um, that we've been looking at there. And uh, so we talked about that, a sacred cow. I've defined as a strongly held belief, opinion, or practice that is neither commanded nor forbidden in Scripture, in the Bible. Now, if something is commanded or forbidden in the Bible, there's no wiggle room. As believers, we should, if it's commanded, we should be doing it, and if it's forbidden, we shouldn't be doing it. That's black and white, and the Bible is very black and white in a whole lot of places. And and some of you, it's going to push against you a little bit, but did you know that there are some gray areas in the Bible? There are places where good Christians can have different feelings or applications of even biblical principles. Say, prove it to me. Go back and listen to the last six messages. But Romans 14, Romans 14 talks about that very thing. There are some gray areas on, on, on areas of private devotion, of public displays with the dates, the, the Jewish traditions, religious traditions, ways they've been brought up, ways that they would worship, wouldn't worship. We saw all of those things. And, and so, and, and I talked about in this series, we all have sacred cows. We all have some strongly held beliefs, opinions, practices that are neither forbidden nor commanded in the Bible, and it's not wrong. Paul didn't say, get rid of your sacred cow. You know what he said? He said, get along in spite of your sacred cows. Don't let your sacred cows divide the body of Christ, and don't let that happen. And so, uh, we looked last week, the title, all of our titles have been farm-related, and last week the title was The Fattest Calf of Them All, and that would be Worship Wars. And I talked about, and so that was part one, tonight's part two of Worship Wars, The Fattest Calf of Them All. I told you last week that it was a two-part message. Last week was a philosophical introduction on the topic of, uh, of Christian music in our lives, in our churches. Tonight is what I hope to be a biblical application with some thoughts on how to properly approach the subject. And I'm trying to get us to think biblically in this series. I'm not trying to get you to do what I do. 
I'm not trying to get you to like what I like. Now again, if it's clear in Scripture, then yes, if I like it, I want you to like it. But in those areas, the goal here is not for me to imprint my image into you in any area, any matter of Christian liberty or preference. The goal is to think biblically through these areas of Christian liberty and preference, and to be able to understand one of the whole messages was figuring out what is an area of preference and what is not, theological triage. There are some things that are are firm doctrines in Scripture that some people want to say are preferential, and they're not. And then there are some things that are preferential that some people want to say are firm fundamentals of the faith, and they're not. There's not scriptural support on either side. So the goal is to approach these things biblically in biblical ways. And, uh, and, And I said last week, probably, there's probably nothing that has divided believers and divided churches in the last 50 years across the country more than this area of what we would call worship music or Christian music. It has caused church splits. It has caused pastors to be fired. It has caused fights within churches. It has caused good people to leave churches they've been in for decades. It has caused pastors to fight with other pastors. It has caused conferences to be held and people to write books. And this area has caused great discord. I I was pretty transparent last week that our church has never faced a church split over this, this issue. But when I came here about eight years ago, we weren't in a worship war, but Pastor Tomlinson was dealing with what I called last week a worship scuffle. There was a little bit of a, and, and even in this church, there have at times been division and, and, and dif- differing opinions, which again is okay, and disagreements, but, but the goal is, are we approaching this biblically, and are we approaching these things in ways, and by the way, for those that think, well, you're preaching this because there's a problem here in our church right now, the truth of the matter is, it's been, it's been many, many, many months since I've had a single conversation or email or communication with anybody in our church uh, on, on any dis- disagreement or concern in this area. There have been, in my eight years here, there have been some of those, and, and I welcome those. Let's walk through this biblically, but this is not like a fire I'm trying to put out. This is a series of messages I had planned years ago to walk through Romans 14 because of how God has shown me some things in His Word. And, uh, and so, uh, we're going to look at Worship Wars, the fattest calf of them all. By way of review, I do not have time to develop these. I spent plenty of time developing them last week. But let's, let's go through a few of our philosophical introductory statements. Number one, I said last week, music is a gift from God. Music is something that God gave us as a gift in our lives. Music is is biblical. Music is something that's wonderful. It can bring great peace. It can bring great joy. It can edify us. It can turn our eyes heavenward. It can cause us to love God and love others more. God made music, and it's a beautiful gift from God. And He gave some of us um, uh, great musical ability. Some of you He didn't, but some of us He did. And... uh, or maybe it's the other way. Some of us he didn't, and some of you he did. Uh, but he, he's given, and some people have, have just some, and then they've worked and developed those things. But music is a gift from God. Number two, music is powerful. I illustrated this in different ways, but music, the music we listen to, it impacts our thinking. It impacts our emotions. It impacts our associations. It impacts our thoughts. It impacts our actions. I was so encouraged. I got an email from one of our sweet young ladies in our church. She's not, she may be watching online, she's not uh, here right now, she's away, and, and she sent me an email and said, uh, so thankful for our church, so thankful for both morning and evening messages last Sunday, and she said, God convicted me in that message last week, and while you were preaching, I deleted some albums off my Spotify playlist. I didn't mention one time, delete albums or this or that. I just said, let's understand the power of music in our lives. And from that thought, the Holy Spirit said, there's some music that probably isn't leading you in in ways that are drawing you closer to God. And she, while I was preaching, was taking action and saying, I need to get this music out of my life. What an encouragement that was to a pastor when I never even mentioned it, that she said, let me think through what I'm allowing to influence me. Number three, I said last week, most musical components are amoral. That is not having inherent morality. Use the illustration of a brick. Is a brick um, good or bad? Depends on whose hands it's in. If it's used to build a school or an orphanage or a hospital, it's good. If it's used to break into a car and rob or a house and rob someone, it's bad. Most musical components are the same. The middle C is not evil or wrong. A guitar is not right or wrong. A piano is not right or wrong. These are all moral components that, depending on whose hand and what, um, what their motives are and what they want to accomplish, they can use 
C and D flat and whatever it would be in these chords and a guitar and a piano and the list goes on and they can use them to, to do things that bring great honor and glory to God or that blaspheme his name. And so we looked at that, that music, most musical components, if not almost all of them are, I guess you could say there would be some words that would definitely not be all moral, some specific words that would be vulgar. And so that's why I said most there, but most musical components are all moral. Number four, most music is not all moral. Most music has, and not all, that's why I said most, but most music, when I say music, a song, it has some level of morality. It is either leading us in good paths or leading us to think about things that would not be pleasing to God. And I use some illustrations where there is music that, in my opinion, is not right or wrong. It's just, it's, it's somewhat neutral, and there might be some classical music. There might be some just fun songs, uh, whatever that might be. We talked about that last week. Number five, some music is setting appropriate. Talked about the fact that our family, we, when the kids were younger, we would sing, you've got a friend in me. We had a whole CD playlist that we would sing as a family on a road trip. And nothing wrong in, for our family with singing that Toy Story song, but I'm not going to ask Pastor Sammy to lead us in it next Sunday. Some music that we might have in our lives, we would not have in church. It's just setting appropriate. Like many areas where Christians can have different preferences or applications, we said last week three things. Much of music is, number one, cultural. What you grew up with, what culture you grew up in. We talked about, you know, formal music and country music and bluegrass and in the South, and we looked at different regions and different things. For some, your culture in church is traditional hymns. Others, it might be Southern gospel. It might be more formal. It might be cultural orchestral, maybe not Southern gospel, which would be more like a country music flavor, but traditional gospel. And, and it would be um, what you might find in, in your mind in maybe a black church, that, that kind of a gospel sound. And depending on your culture, There is different music that you're accustomed to, that maybe you enjoy, that is different. Much of music is cultural. I said last week, number two, much of music is regional. Different areas have different musical styles. We heard the sitar. We heard, um, we heard uh, music, mariachi music from Mexico. We looked at music from Italy. And we can immediately identify music from certain regions because that region is identified with that style of music. And then lastly, we said much of music is generational. And we looked at, for right or for wrong, or I don't even know if it's right or wrong, just for better or worse, Sometimes just things change in generations. We, we talked about the difference in dress going to a baseball game today versus 75 years ago. It's just different. And we could, we could sit down and have an argument if it's better or worse, but it's just different generationally. And so things change with generations we looked at. Lastly, and here's our message. This is the fourth point. All of that was a philosophical introduction to this topic. Number four, I want to say tonight, music is biblical. I want to make it clear, because if I stopped last week that it's cultural, regional, and generational, it gives the idea that then just whatever I like or whatever I'm used to is okay. But music is in the Bible. It is biblical. The Bible speaks about music. If if it wasn't a biblical issue, we could do anything that we wanted to do with it. We say that God's Word has everything we need for faith and practice, right? Right? It has all that we need that pertains to life and godliness. Would we say that? That God's Word has everything we need that pertains to life and godliness. Is music part of our lives? So the Bible has everything we need to be able to apply biblical principles and truths to this area. We are what we call a New Testament local church. Why is that? Christ, when He came, they were living under the Old Testament law. Christ did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. We are no longer under the law. If you had bacon or lobster or pork chops this week, you did not live the law. If you're wearing um, um, something that's half polyester and half cotton, mixed fabrics, you're not fulfilling the law. If you shaved your sideburns, you're not fulfilling the law. All of these are Old Testament that you'll see to this day, Orthodox Jews still doing. We're no longer under the Old Testament law. Now there are parts, and again that's much civil and ceremonial, I'm going too deep. There are parts, obviously the Ten Commandments are things that are still biblical truths that we, we, we abide by and we go with. And that's another message for another time. But when Christ came, he, the, the veil was rent in twain, and we entered into the New Testament or the New Covenant. 
And in the New Testament, he established the church. He told Peter, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He said, uh, we're, we're starting a group of Christians. It's no longer only for Jews. It's for everybody. And, and those that follow me, Jew or Gentile, are called Christians and believers. And so we, as what we call a New Testament local church, we pattern our polity, our practice, our belief. We pattern it after the teachings of Jesus and the inspired Word of God in the New Testament. That doesn't mean we don't learn from the Old Testament. We're preaching through Genesis right now. Doesn't mean that the Old Testament is is archaic or is is um, um, uh, 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 unnecessary. It's not what that means. We've talked a lot about that in our Genesis series. What it does mean is when we look at how the church should operate, we go back to the New Testament, and we say we're a New Testament local church. So then, if it's a biblical issue, and we're a New Testament local church. I want us to ask, what does the New Testament teach us regarding music? And I'm not opposed to studying anything in the Old Testament. I didn't want it to be another two-hour message, so we're going to stick to the New Testament tonight. But what does it teach us about music in the life of the Christian and music in the church and how we can apply those principles in our music? I want you to understand, first of all, there are general biblical principles that apply to every area of our life, music included. So you'll find general principles in Scripture. Paul wrote to a carnal church that was not pleasing God in their personal choices and church practices, the church at Corinth, and he said this, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do what? Do all to the? To what? One more time, to the? Do all to the glory of God. Is music mentioned there? Yes or no? Is music directly mentioned or, 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 or uh, related to that? I mean, is music directly mentioned in that verse? Not really. Does that verse apply to our musical choices? Absolutely. These are general principles. The way that I dress, the language that I use, the way that I treat my coworkers, my honesty and my finances, the way that I carry myself with other people, believers and unbelievers, that is a very general verse that applies to all whatsoever I do. Is music part of whatsoever I do? So there are some general principles that we look at and say, so then I need to ask myself, is the music in, 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 in my life, is the music in our church, is the music that, that I'm allowing to influence me, because it's powerful, uh, is, it, is, it, is it to the glory of God or is it to the feeding of my flesh? Is it leading me to think things of Him or is it leading me to think things that I ought not be thinking? Is it in everything that I do, can I say that I'm doing that to the glory of God? If I'm not doing it to the glory of God, it's sin. And that's in every area. So there are these general principles. And then there are specific passages about music. In the next few minutes, and this is going to sound like, how are you going to do it in the next few minutes? You'll see in a minute. In the next few minutes, I'm going to give you every passage that directly speaks in any way about music in the New Testament. The entire New Testament— 27 books, I'm going to, we're going to see tonight every single verse that directly talks about music, specifically about music in our lives. It's possible that I missed one. I tried to do a good study. If I did, it was unintentional, and I'd be glad for you to share it with me, and I may um, stand up on another Sunday night and mention that reference for others. We're going to go through these, and you can write these references down to review and study later. If music matters to God as much as it has mattered to the American church in the last 50 years or so, it only makes sense that he's going to be very clear on this issue on what is pleasing to him and what isn't pleasing to him. And so we're going to look at that this morning. He's going to give us the truths we need to guide this vitally important and impactful area of our lives that he created. Let's see what he has to say in order of appearance in the New Testament. So if you know your books of the Bible, you'll know how far along we're getting based on the book we're in, because we're going to go in the order that it appears. We have the Gospels, the four accounts of Christ walking on earth. Jesus, the one that we follow, we say we're Christians. That is Christ-like. That's a Christ follower. Let's see what he had to say in the Gospels, in those four books, the recorded words under the inspired Word of God. Matthew chapter number 9, the first mention of anything musical. The Bible says, and when Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the minstrels and the people making a noise, he said unto them, give place, for the maid is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. There's, there were people, minstrels, those that were singing and or dancing there, and he walked through. This, this has a musical reference in my opinion, has nothing specific application of, of the type of music that's in our lives or that's in our church, but I told you we're going to give every musical reference. Matthew 11, the Bible says, but whereunto shall I liken this generation? 
It is like unto children sitting in the markets and calling unto their fellows and saying, we have piped unto you and you have not danced. We have mourned unto you and you have not lamented. He's using a musical picture, Matthew 26. And when they had sung in him, they went out into the Mount of Olives. So here we see really the first reference where anything actually what we might call Christian music related is. And what we see is the disciples in a very heavy season of their lives, in a very important season of Jesus' life and ministry, together they sang a hymn before they went, and very quickly Jesus would be crucified. Together we see believers singing together. They had sung in hymn. And I'm not trying to be sarcastic. Sometimes when we say hymns, we get the idea that the canon of all music was closed when our favorite hymnal was published. Okay, the canon was not closed. Nothing in our hymnal is what they were singing. I talked about this last, last week. 90% of, tr- of any church music that we sing was written in the last 10% of, of church history. So see that? It says hymns. You're not singing anything that they were singing there, and I'm not either, unless we're singing a straight psalm, a scripture song, unto the O Lord, or Caleb teaches in our chapel a couple psalms that are right from the Bible, and even then, we're not singing the same tune. We don't know what their tunes were. We just know the words, and so we make up our own tunes for psalms. The next one. But the father, Luke 15, but the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. Now his elder son was in the field and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard what? What did he hear? Music and dancing. This is in Luke 15, the parable of the lost sons. We often say the parable of the prodigal son, it's actually the lost sons. There were two sons there that were, and really it was the elder son, not the prodigal that Jesus was talking about because he was the Pharisee. He had stayed home, but he had the wrong heart. And sometimes it's the quiet rebellion that's the worst. And, and what we see here is, and by the way, so the father, when his son has returned, I believe it's a picture of the celebration in heaven. The Bible says that there is great rejoicing in heaven when one soul comes to repentance. This is a picture of a lost son being redeemed, coming back to the father. I believe there's a picture there of that celebration in heaven. And by the way, the father in this story is a picture of the heavenly father. And under his watch, there was music and dancing. Don't tell your favorite Baptists. And I'm not trying to be sacrilegious. I don't believe this was sensual, ungodly, worldly dancing. But I talked about this. I was in Israel during a bar mitzvah, and they were all celebrating in tambourines and and rejoicing, and there was dancing. And and, and I'm not sure if Diane is here tonight. I think it was with Diane. I said, I think that's probably when we see that they danced before the Lord. I think that's probably what it looked like. They were just, there was just this great joy and celebration. Our boy is now a man, and they're celebrating that at the, at, the, at the Temple Mount, at the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall, as they danced in with all their instruments and all their percussion instruments, and they were dancing. And, and we see here that, was, that, that it's mentioned music and dancing. That's it. That's all the references in all four Gospels that encapsulate the entire life and ministry of Jesus Christ while he walked on earth in the four Gospels. That's it. What about Acts, the history of the early church, where we pattern much of our church after? Here is all of the references in the book of Acts regarding music. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. That's the book of Acts. When they were in trouble, they sang. Music was a gift of comfort. Music was a gift of praise. Music was a testimony to other people. We ought to use our song to bring praise to God in the midst of our trials. There's a lot of applications here, but that's the only verse that references directly music in the book of Acts. And people knew they were Christians because of the way that they sang and the way they sang to God. Were there any instruments there? I don't think so. They were in jail. Did they have a hymnal? I don't think so. They were in jail. They just sang praises. Did it look exactly like what we did tonight or this morning? I don't think so. They were in jail. That's it in the book of Acts. Paul started somewhere between 10 and 20 churches during his missionary journeys in Acts. That verse we just read is the only one. Let's see what he says in his letters, because what happens is those churches started getting messed up in different areas. They got messed up in different areas of doctrine, in different areas of morality, in different areas of practice. They started doing things that were displeasing to God, and Paul pulled no punches bringing them all up. 
Corinthians, you're immoral. Galatians, you're legalist. You've got these problems in doctrine here. You're not trusting God there. You've gotten the Lord's table wrong. You're messing up the way that you're looking for the coming of the Lord. He, he, he dealt with all of it, doctrinal, practical. Uh, he dealt with all of those things. Let's see in all the letters that we have from the inspiration of the Holy Ghost what God told us regarding uh, the Pauline epistles, regarding the practice and, and in, in music in our lives. Romans 15, 9, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written, for this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. It's pointing back uh, to the Old Testament, to a psalm in the Old Testament there, and saying that we should sing unto his name. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, what is it then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. Same chapter, 11 verses later. How is it then, brethren? When you come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edifying. He's talking to the church at Corinth there, and he's saying, don't, don't get a really chaotic, you ought not have a chaotic church. Everything you do shouldn't be to draw attention to yourself. It should be to encourage and edify others. And by the way, that's why I often say that our music team, it's one reason we don't, and other churches can do what they want to do. This is, again, a prefer, preferential area. We don't bring the lights way down. We could make this room really dark. We've done it for plays. You can bring all these shades down, take away all the natural light. We could bring the lights. We have a system that could bring the lights way down, where all the focus was on four or five people, and and, and we watch them. Our music program is not to watch four or five people in a performance. They are here to help us lead us in corporate praise and corporate worship, edifying one another and seeing each other. I don't want the feeling of some sort of, of, of we're, we're sitting here watching a presentation. No, we're a body of believers edifying each other. Uh, Ephesians chapter number five, verse number 18, be not drunk with wine wherein is the excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Here's what he says, speaking to yourselves in what? Psalms, that would be a, a, a scripture song straight from the Bible. Hymns, that's a song that really magnifies God and His glory. We sang this morning, holy, 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 that would be a hymn. Hymn doesn't mean if it's in the hymnal or not. We have songs that would not be a, 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 technically a hymn in our hymn book. Uh, it's not about what book it's in, it's about the, the style and the purpose of the song. And then spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. He says, when you're filled with the Spirit, the right music will come out of you and you'll encourage one another. You'll speak to each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Colossians chapter number three, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do you see it here? Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. And that's it. That's all the Pauline epistles. That's, that's every letter Paul wrote. Every letter that he wrote, Paul wrote 87 chapters that make up 13 letters, and there are five verses in every one of those that deal directly with music. And this this is the issue that has split more churches, caused more members to leave, angered more believers, caused more division and discord than just about any issue in the modern church in America. I'm almost done with our New Testament references. Hebrews, another general epistle. We don't know the author. The Bible says, saying, I will declare thy name unto thy, my brethren in the midst of the church while I sing praise unto thee. James says this, is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let them sing psalms. The rest will come from Revelation, a book about the end times, and then we're done with every direct reference of music in the New Testament. Revelation 5, when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayer of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our gods kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Our choir sings a song, Is he worthy, that comes right from that 
passage right there, and it's somewhere down in the future. It's in, it's in prophetic times, in end times, and we sing a song that's taken right from that passage. Revelation chapter number 14, the Bible says, and I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder, and I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps, and they sung as it were a new song before the throne, and before the four beasts, and the elders, and no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. Revelation 15, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works. Lord God Almighty, just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. And then lastly, the last reference, Revelation 18, verse 22, and the voice of harpers and musicians and of pipers and trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in thee, and no craftsman of whatsoever craft he be shall be found any more in thee, and the sound of a millstone shall be heard no more at all in thee. It's talking about when that final battle and everything is destroyed, and then we have the new heaven and the new earth. And I, I don't know about you, but I was somewhat surprised as I studied this out in the New Testament. That's it. You just heard and read every direct reference to anything musical in the entire New Testament. 27 books, 260 chapters, almost 8,000 verses, 8,000 verses almost, and about 20 of those reference music, singing, instruments of any kind. And this is not, this is not meant, this is meant to challenge us to think biblically. This is, I don't have an agenda with this message. There are things about our, our music ministry that are some, some of them are my preference and some of them are not. Some of the songs we sing are my favorites and some of them are not. This is not me trying to fashion Liberty Baptist Church into some musical agenda or identity that I have. I want to see a group of, of unified, joyful believers lifting up their voices together by the hundreds every Sunday singing praise to Him. That's my agenda. But, so I don't mean this sarcastically, but we just saw every passage in the New Testament. What instruments were commanded for Christians or churches to use? We saw harps a couple of times. There's no command. So maybe if we could find anybody here know how to play a harp, because we don't have one of those up here. I love the harp. Which instruments were forbidden? pastoral epistles, we call them. It's Paul writing to younger pastors, telling them, Timothy is all about how to behave in the church, telling them how a church should function and operate. The pastoral epistles, you've got, you've got uh, Thessalonians, you've got Timothy, you've got Titus. The pastoral epistles, how to lead the church. I found it really interesting there's not a single mention of anything musical in any of the pastoral epistles. Jesus, three years on, on, on earth, his earthly ministry, all of his teachings, 33 years on earth, telling us what we should do and what we shouldn't. He gives principles for holiness. But from what I can see, no particulars and some areas where he's really, really, and the Bible's really, really strict and, and what's the word I'm looking for? Just really kind of very clear. Um, he tells us how to preach, how to love, how to live, how to serve. Can I say this? And I might have mentioned this a few weeks ago when we were looking at another message in this series. There are far more mentions and warnings against discord, division, gossip, a bad attitude towards spiritual leadership, unity in the church, a focus on the gospel than any of our preferred musical styles. I could, if, I, if I wanted to preach everything that dealt with unity in the church and brotherly love and discord from the New Testament, this would be like last week's message. Much, much longer. So let's wrap it up. Again, everybody views what I'm, it's funny, this happens on social media. Everybody reads into content from their own angle and assigns motives to what you're saying. I saw one person say something, and so some even here or some watching are like, he's trying to bring something in or he's trying to change this. or he's, No, I'm really not. There, there, that's, that's, I want us to be a biblical church and biblical believers that approach every area of our lives with biblical lenses. It's funny, I saw somebody say, if you're on Twitter, and you say, you know, man, I love mangoes. Somebody else says, why do you hate apples? <laughs> or, I just gave my life to rescue 600 dogs. Why do you hate cats? It's like we view whatever someone says with this skepticism, this angle, and we assign these thoughts and these motives. And, and, and so I want to be very clear. As I wrap it up, 
somebody could take everything I've said in the introduction and up to this point to try to say, it doesn't matter then what music is in our lives, and that's the farthest thing from what I'm trying to say. And anything goes, and that's the farthest thing. Anything doesn't go in my music selection in my own personal life. Anything doesn't go in the music that we play in our cars and at our home. Anything doesn't go that I'm aware of. Now, my kids can listen to things that I don't know about, but in the music that I'm aware of them listening to, anything doesn't go. Anything doesn't go in the church that that I will stand before God and answer for at one time. And so I want to be very clear. This is not me leading up to say, just free for all. Every man does that which is right in his own eyes. Well, I like this music. Well, it makes me feel good. Well, it's what I grew up with, so it's pleasing to God. Anything doesn't go. It's powerful. It's biblical. It impacts our emotions, our actions, our associations, our thoughts. It can be used in wonderful, righteous ways, and it can be used in vile, wicked, ungodly ways. And so if all of those things are true, if all of those things are are the reality, then I want us to understand how do we navigate this issue. And I'll close by giving you the characteristics or philosophy by which I filter, based on biblical principles, by which I filter my personal musical choices and also trying to lead in our church music choices. And these are my thoughts. I want to be clear. Here's where we've gotten into problems. Good men with good motives, I believe, have seen maybe a lack of specificity in Scripture about music. And so because of that, we have preached for doctrine the commandments of men. Here is my opinion. Opinion. I want to be very clear. These things I'm going to give you, I believe they're based on biblical truth, but you saw all of the commands and, and, and prohibitions. So I believe they're based on biblical truth, but they are my thoughts that guide music in my life and in our ministry. What are some things that I believe you should filter because it does matter what you listen to? It is a biblical thing. It is, it is a very personal thing, and it's a powerful thing. Number one, doctrinally sound. Doctrinally sound. What does the Bible say? They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in, in spirit and in what? Truth. You are what you sing, and all Christian music is not true to Scripture. Can I say that again? All Christian music is not true to Scripture. There are, there are some songs, shocker. And by the way, the hymnal is produced by my home church that was produced by, by, by my father-in-law in that ministry, and we bought them here because I think it's a great hymnal. There are some songs in that hymnal that I have doctrinal problems with. Not very many, but a couple. Is it doctrinally sound? What does the Bible say? Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. First John, that's a very practical biblical principle, but I think it really applies to our music. When he says, love not the world, does that mean don't love people? No, that's not what that means. Does that mean don't love the earth and take good care of it? No, that's not what that means. Does that mean don't love anything that's in the world? No, I I love a good steak. My wife got a Starbucks coffee. She loves coffee today. We, We love some things that are in the world. What does that mean? Don't fall in love with the world's system. Why? Because the world's system is against God. And may I tell you, much of the music in our culture today is of the world's system. And this is where it can get subjective. And this is where you need to be spirit filled. And if the Holy Spirit doesn't give you liberty, even if they call it Christian music, but for you it's too much like this world system, then let every man be persuaded in his own mind, and you can set up some stricter boundaries than I might set up, and I might set up some stricter boundaries in my life in this area than Kevin might set up, and Kevin might set up some stricter boundaries than Joshua might set up, and that's all right, but let the Bible guide you in in all of these areas, but in the area of music, love not the world. That doesn't mean what we would call secular music. I just told you, you've got a friend in me. I don't think that that is teaching the, the, the wisdom of the age. I, don't, I think that's teaching that good friendships are good friendships. I don't think that's teaching someone to go away from God, but, but there are plenty of songs that do. And so love not the world or things that are in the world. Secular songs, ask yourself, is it doctrinally sound? By the way, not only Christian songs are they doctrinally sound. The secular songs, is there doctrinal error? What does the word doctrine mean? The word doctrine means teaching. That's all it means. What, are your, what is your music teaching you? What is it teaching you? Is it doctrinal era, error? Some country music, there's kind of the joke, you know, with, with country music, uh, especially maybe some of the older stuff, if you play it backwards, you get your wife back, your truck back, your dog back, because it's all about losing your wife and losing your truck, and life went bad, and so I'm singing about all of those things. 
And I'm going to get to a minute in a minute. There are actually some country songs that really, this sounds, might sound funny to you, really minister to me. I really like, and I'll explain it in a minute. But much, much of that genre, it's talking about your wife's going to leave you, drown away your sorrows with some beer and your boys. That's not doctrinally sound. It's causing you to think about things that are not right. Whatsoever things are pure, just, honest, lovely, good report. If there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. You ever got a song stuck in your head and you can't get it out? Isn't it the worst? I've had times where I've woken up in the middle of the night, a song playing in my head. I don't know what it is about music, but music has a powerful way to get us to think on certain things, and we'll get certain, and what is your music causing you to think about? That, that, that's in the New Testament, whatsoever things are pure, just, lovely, honest, good report. It has, it's not speaking directly about music, but that's one of those that applies to our music. Now, it doesn't teach us, thou shalt have a piano. That's where then we have to filter some things through some subjective, spirit-filled and spirit-led ways, but what is your music teaching you? Other pop songs teaching you life is about getting as many women as you can, finding your identity in the clothes you wear, cars you drive, money you make. Some music and some genres glorify drug and alcohol use. Other songs talk about hating authorities and cops are evil, women are objects, your selfish fulfillment is all that matters. Much of the world, much of the music of the world should be out of the believer's life immediately because it is not doctrinally sound. It is teaching you philosophies that go directly against Scripture. Well, it's just a fun song. I just like it. But is it teaching you that you ought to get in this relationship for a short time and then go try that guy out and then go over and see that girl? That is not doctrinally sound. There are, there are, there are songs all about, you know, all kinds of things in our agenda, in, in this world's agenda. And so we have to ask ourselves, don't, don't think, well, Pastor Ryan said it. To be honest, the New Testament doesn't directly approach Scripture all that much, but it gives us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And what we're doing in every area, including music, is it bringing honor and glory to God? Is it causing us to think on things that are pure and just and lovely and of good report? Is it doctrinally sound? I only bring this up, I only actually looked into this because I recently saw a headline that Taylor Swift is currently in the middle, I'm not a Swifty I think they're called, that's not me, but is in the middle of what is estimated to be the highest grossing tour of any musician in history. They say that she may gross a billion dollars on her current tour. I saw that, that, that headline, her songs are ubiquitous in our culture. I found that out as I went and kind of looked through some of this. I don't, I've never intentionally listened to Taylor Swift in my whole life. But as I heard a couple of songs, I realized, oh, I've heard that song before at the mall, or I, I know that song, it's just in our culture. So I use her as an illustration. I searched her greatest hits. According to one, of, to one list, some of her top 10 songs of all time, the one who right now is currently in the middle of the highest grossing tour, her, one of her top 10 songs of all time is a song called You Belong to Me. I don't know the song, but I read the lyrics, and I read a thing that was actually praising her, describing what the song was about. It's a song about a girl trying to get a guy who is in another relationship to like her instead. It glamorizes unfaithfulness to a relationship. Is that doctrinally sound? Is that causing us to think about things that are pure and just? And here's the thing, for those that are used to listening to that, you're like, man, you're some old fuddy-duddy. You don't understand, that's just entertainment. Oh, be not deceived, God is not mocked, what sort of man soweth, that shall he also reap. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. We cannot help but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Our influences do matter. That which we're putting into our heads does come out in our lives. And one of her top songs is about you belong to me, a guy that's in another relationship basically saying, we're supposed to be together, leave her, come to me. And is it any wonder then that is the view of relationships that so many in this generation have? Another song, Blank Space, is a song about her reputation as a serial dater who moves on from one relationship to another, her true life story. She can't find love, but yet she sings about it to millions making billions. She can't find love in her own life. She goes from one relationship to another and goes from here to there. It's a song that, that, about giving herself to one guy and then another. One of the lyrics, I got a long list of ex-lovers that will tell you I'm insane, and I love the players. 
What is that? And again, I could pick any, many, not any, I could pick many secular artists. I chose this one because I just saw that headline about her being on the middle of the world's largest tour ever. Is that pure? Is that to the glory of God? Blank space, meaning I've got, I've got room in my history book to add you. I've got all these pages of all these guys I've been with. Let's add you in there. I've got a long list of ex-lovers. And yet, again, there's a ditch on both sides here, believer. There's a ditch on me as a pastor binding your conscience to things that only I like, but then there's a ditch when we come to realize, wait a second, what was preached for doctrine as the, what was preached for doctrine that was the commandments of men, hey, you know what? Anything goes, and there's the ditch of coming over here and allowing our children as well. And I get it that at some point our children have to make their own choices, but I can help train and teach and explain this issue as they make their own choices. And coming over here, the other side of that is, well, nothing matters. God can use anything. He can redeem it. He can use it. Oh, it just, it's just... It's just a fun song I sing with my friends, Be Not Deceived. A song love story is about her sneaking around in a forbidden relationship that her dad doesn't want her involved in. Doesn't sound like a, a real biblical encouragement to me for young, young girls to be listening to. I could go on. All secular music isn't sinful, but much of it is. If it's teaching you philosophy in opposition to God's word, it has no place in the life of a Christian. Can I say that again? If it's teaching you philosophy in opposition to God's word, it has no place in your life or mine. Well, it's fun. Everybody knows it. Everyone listens to it. And by the way, you know how I know that's true? In our Christian school, and we have guidelines, and we have rules, and we'll go to basketball games and tournaments and malls and different places together, and I'll see some of your kids and mine singing these songs. They know them by heart. Young people, parents, let's wake up. What we listen to matters. Is it doctrinally sound? Number two, number two, is it theological? What are the guidelines for me and then for our music program here? Theologically rich. This is specifically for our congregational singing here at church for me and Pastor Sammy. We only get to sing eight to ten songs together corporately each week. I don't want to waste too many of those slots on songs that aren't teaching us doctrine, rich doctrine and truth that we can carry with us. There's a song we, that I've heard sung years and years ago. We don't sing it here. Let us have a little talk with Jesus. Nothing wrong with that song, but it's not Mansion Over the Hilltop. I like singing that song. It's an old Southern gospel song. Nothing wrong with it, but to be honest, it's not really theologically rich. If we want to get deep into it, I think it's actually theologically inaccurate the way that it talks about it. Those are fun songs. That's fine. And there's a time and a place for those. But for our church music program, I want songs that are teaching us rich biblical truth and doctrine. There's a song that's a fun song that, that our kids sometimes sing, one of our little ones likes, um, called I'm So Blessed. It's a fun song. We've sung it as a family. Uh, we, we were at the children's home in Tampa, and they sang it to us. And so the rest of the senior trip, uh, all the seniors, we sang that thing like four times a day in the van. We were shouting at the top of our lungs. And it's a fun song. The first stanza says this, trouble knocking at my door today. I ain't going to let it in. Worry want to steal my joy away, but I ain't going to let it win. It's not a bad song. Not the most theologically deep, rich song ever. Last, uh, just, just tonight, the last song that we sang, behold, compare the, the lyrics, behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect, spotless righteousness, the great, unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace, one with himself, I cannot die, my soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ, my Savior, and my God. I didn't tell them to sing that song today. In fact, we sang All Creatures of My God and King, and I told my wife, I don't, I don't really know this song. We've only sung this a couple times here. But I love it. I didn't tell them to sing that. That was the last song we just sang corporately. You hear those lyrics? Trouble knocking at my door today, I ain't going to let it in. Worry want to steal my joy away, but I ain't going to let it win. Again, I'll sing that song in my car, I'll have some fun, it's okay. But for our church music program, I want some, we are what we sing. We're learning biblical truth. And there's some biblical truth in that, 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 that on my best day, I'm a child of God. On my worst day, I'm a child of God. But it's not the most theologically rich. It's why some newer artists who write what I call the Jesus is my boyfriend songs aren't my favorite. Where you can listen to the whole song. There's one in particular I've talked to our kids about and said, I'd prefer you not to listen to this Christian artist. She, her last two full albums as a Christian artist, pretty, pretty widespread. I don't think there's the name of Jesus in any of the songs. 
You can listen to the whole song, and you could plug in her boyfriend's name and Jesus' name, and they work exactly the same. To me, our songs are teaching us something. And yes, do I love him? Yes, but it's not on the same level of, of, of you know, God gave me a, a, a kiss or whatever. That's just, again, churches might want to sing some of those. That's not me. Number three, I'm almost done. Number three, are they singable? This is for our church music program. Again, for our corporate worship. Is it singable? Some songs are just really hard to sing together, aren't they? They're just hard to sing. Either the melody or the timing or the rhythm or the range of notes. Not everybody has the wide range that some of us do. And so they're hard. I don't want our instrumentalists to need a doctorate in music to be able to play it. Melodies that people can pick up and learn. It's one reason I really like um, some of the newer hymns. I like some of the older hymns. A lot of them are this way. They're really singable. And, and when I say older, I'm talking about the last 100, 200 years. Um, and then some of the newer hymns, specifically by the Gettys, by, the, by City of Light, there's some newer hymns that have some real singable uh, melodies with some really deep, theologically rich lyrics. I don't want to sing them just because they're new, but they're, yet not I, but Christ in me. This morning, it was finished upon the cross. And some singable things. Are they singable? One benefit of traditional uh, hymns, some newer songs can be really hard. They're great to hear people perform. They're really hard for a congregation to sing together. Hard to sing by yourself when you're not, or if you're not listening to it. You're gathered around a hospital bed. If you don't have the track playing behind you, some of the newer songs can be really hard. I've been there where we've been like at a bonfire with a bunch of teenagers, and they have a song they want to sing, and it's a song they really like, and they love it. They listen to it, and we sing it together with instrumentals. And then when we're around a bonfire, if no one has a guitar, or even if they do, we try to sing it, and it's like, oh, that, that song kind of stinks. You know what I'm talking about, Adrian? Like some of those, like, man, I can't do that. Adrian's musically plays the guitar. But some of these are really hard to sing, whereas you get to some other ones that, that might be a little easier melodically and musically for everybody to be able to sing. Again, singable is not a necessary, I mean, the Bible talks about singing. It's not a biblical requirement. I'm giving you some personal philosophy. Number four, enjoyable. Singing should be a time of joy, of praise. All through the Bible, singing accompanies praise of God. It edifies other. Hey, it's okay if a song brings a smile to your face. Can I let you in? I know we're, we're Baptists, most of us. It's okay to have a little emotion in church. It's okay. And you don't have to do this, but it's okay to lift a holy hand in praise to God. That's in the Bible. It's okay to clap your hands, all you people. Clap your hands. That's in the Bible. It's all right. I understand we got scared of the charismatics, and we're worried that if I lift my hand up, I might immediately start rolling down the aisle speaking in tongues. I understand. I understand there's some concern there for some of us based on how we were brought up. It's all right. My father-in-law, who is unbelievably conservative in his musical preferences and his, his life, my father-in-law used to say, a song ought to do one of three things. It ought to cause you to tap your toe, lift your hand, or a tear to come from your eye. What was he saying? It's okay for a song for you to enjoy a song. That's all right. God isn't, he's not, he's not scared by your emotion. He gave you that emotion. It's okay for a song to make you cry. It's okay to lift a hand to smile. It's okay to sing out. It's all right. And I love it. I think our church has grown in this in, 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 through the years, but it's all right for it to be enjoyable, singing an enjoyable time, not like, oh, did, did we, did we, did we, was the rhythm like half a beat off there, and, and that goes against my heartbeat's rhythm, and so Satan must have just been worshipped right there. And we have all kinds of crazy things that we teach in our music theory stuff. Like if it's on the one three beat, that's a back beat, which goes against human nature and the heartbeat, and so the devil receives worship. And like, I'm not going to go into it because if you don't know this stuff, you don't need to know it. But there are some of us that have heard some of these weird things. It's all right. Everything is not standing there and, and, and overanalyzing. Just sing in joy and in praise to God. Number five, for me. How do I navigate the songs for my personal life and for our church family? Doctrinally sound, theologically rich, singable, enjoyable. Number five, intergenerational. It's why, as long as I'm here, there is no plan for us not to sing what we would call the old traditional hymns, because they bind generations together. I want our kids knowing the same songs that their grandparents knew if they were in church. I want, when they get together around grandma's funeral with grandpa, I want them to be able to sing. When they sing, let's sing, it is well. I want them to know it is well. Intergenerational. Here's what happens in worship wars and churches. Here's what happens in the worship wars. It seems to often happen. An older generation digs in their heels and says to a younger generation, you will only like the songs I like, and you will like it. And that's selfish. 
And a younger generation selfishly says, I'm leaving that church, they're boring, they're old, and I'm going to a fun, hip, new church where I'm surrounded by people my age singing songs I like, and that's selfish. Young people, you need to be in a church with white-haired people all around you. You need to be in a church, older folks, with young people all around you, and, and running around, and babies. We need a thriving nursery, and a thriving children's program, and a thriving youth group, and young adults, and couples, and middle-aged, and senior saints, and widows, and widowers. That's a picture of the church. That's what it's supposed to be, and our music should reflect that. You ought not, if, you're, if, you're, if your genre is this, you ought not say, well, if you don't sing what I like, then I'm out of here, and that can be done for people that love the hymnal, and that can be done for people that they don't really know any of the hymns. Both can have that attitude, and that is not an attitude that is pleasing to Christ. We have churches because of this mindset filled with a disproportionate number of people under 40. Certain churches, you look around, you can't find anybody with white hair or bald head to, to save your life. They have catered to a specific generation. And can I tell you, I've been in many where you look around and you can't see anybody under 60 to save your life. They have catered to a specific generation's preferences. What happens when you go to Thanksgiving with your family? What happens? There's a time, if, if your family's like ours, where the kids want to play on the ground. And you know what grandpa does? Grandpa gets down. You just had some grandkids here. I'm guessing you were on the ground once or twice, Craig, while they were here. And grandpa, does grandpa ever get on the ground by himself when the kids aren't around? I'm not grandpa yet, but I'm telling you, I rarely get on the ground because it's hard to get up the older you get. Grandpa doesn't like getting on the ground. It hurts to get on the ground. I was talking to somebody today. They said, I woke up with an injury. That's how you know you're getting old. You wake up with new injuries. I didn't have this injury when I went to bed. I woke up and I have a new injury. But you know what grandpa does? Grandpa would rather sit, sleep, watch Fox News, whatever grandpas like to do. But you know what he does when grandkids come around, if he's a good grandpa? He puts aside his preference of how he wants to spend his time, and he gets on the ground and he plays with the grandkids. And then you know what happens when it's time for the meal? Grandma and mom and, and dad and whoever and carving the turkey and grilling it and trying not to set the house on fire while they fry it. And they work hard to create this beautiful spread. And again, if your family's like ours, where we try to teach some level of manners, you know what we say to the kids? Hey kids, sit at your table, behave, sit there until you're dismissed, be quiet. What kid wants to sit at a Thanksgiving table for 20, 30, 40 minutes? But you know what the kids do? They put their preference away so that the adults can enjoy some things that they like to enjoy, enjoy their meal in peace and have some adult conversation. And we might have a kid's table over there and don't bother us. You know what happens in a good family? Generations set aside their preferences for the love and unity of the family. You know what happens in a church family in every area, including this one? intergenerational. We do the same thing. You know what a biblical church looks like, in my opinion? Younger people deferring to older people and saying, let's sing some songs that your generation really connected with. And older people saying, let's sing some songs that your generation really connects with. And every generation saying it's really not so important what generation is connecting with a song as it is that generations are connected together by the truth of the song of the one to whom we are singing that song. It's not about my preference. It's not about what I like. It's not about any of those things. It's why we don't stop singing traditional songs, and young people shouldn't want to leave a church where there are many godly senior saints. We need each other. Those of us who are trending older need the enthusiasm and excitement and passion that younger Christians bring, and younger Christians need the example and wisdom and experience that older Christians bring. You know what? This isn't a musical verse, but it's in the New Testament in honor, preferring one another. The aged teach the younger. Younger people, you need older. Older people, you need younger to fulfill your God-given task. Those aren't musical passages. But they're passages that teach us how the church ought to operate. Lastly, the last thing for my life, and, and this would be more my life, and I guess a little of church philosophy, but number six, is it honoring to Christ and or helpful in my life? Let every man be persuaded in his own mind. Oh, that's where we're at. Romans 14. I had you turn there. The end of verse number five, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. One man likes this, another doesn't like that. Let every man be fully, and you know what you have to ask yourself? The Bible says whatsoever is not of faith is sin. You might have liberty in any area, but let's say this area of music, you might have liberty with some parts of that that I don't. And if I were to listen to that, it would be sin because I'm not fully persuaded in my own mind. 
But you know what you need to do? You need to give grace to the one that doesn't land exactly where you land. That's what he says here. Let every man be fully, know what you believe and why, and feel free to stand strong on it for yourself, but don't don't put your preference on somebody else. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. What does he say here? We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the end of verse number 10. Why dost thou judge thy brother? Why dost thou set it not thy brother? Why do you say, I can't fellowship with you anymore? I can't go to that church. I can't spend time with you. And we pick all kinds of foolish reasons for this. And sometimes it's in the area of music. I'm going to set it not my brother. He's what the old Kevin O'Leary line from Shark Tank, you are dead to me. And that's what we do. Pastors do that to other pastors. Churches do that to other churches. Christians do that to other Christians. Well, you have liberty I don't have. You're dead to me. He said, why do you do that? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. If you don't like where they're landing in that area of preferential application, guess what? You don't have to lose any sleep over it because they're going to stand or fall before their own master. You don't need to fix it. And you don't need to unnecessarily divide over it. Honoring to Christ and helpful in my life, can you truly say the music you are listening to is bringing honor and glory to God and is truly helping you in your life to become more like Christ? Earlier, I gave some examples of genres and a specific artist that I believe, at least in some of their music, is clearly dishonoring to God and the truths in his word. But did you know, I referenced it earlier, did you know that I sometimes listen to what we would call secular songs? I told you already, some of the Disney ones. You've got a friend in me. You know that there are some country, that, just getting it out on the, on the open, don't despise me, I'll stand before the Lord. You know there are some country songs that I listen to that I believe are helpful in my life. I'm a girl dad. Somewhere, probably a decade ago, I saw the song, I think it's by Trace Adkins, called uh, My Little, or no, it's, is that uh, My Little Girl, is that Trace? I don't, I don't really listen, I really don't listen to a bunch of this stuff a lot, but I know certain songs. You're going to miss, the, oh, you're going to miss this. You're going to miss this. I actually said it to my wife yesterday. We're in a crazy, maybe it was today, crazy season. I was like, honey, you're going to miss this. She's like, I really don't think I am. <laughs> but you know what that song is all about? And I somewhat joke, but, but I said, that song, it ministers to me. It really does. You know what that song teaches? You're going to miss this. It's written by a country artist. Judge me if you want. That song teaches, I've got, a, I've got my little girl for a really short time, and I'm going to miss these seasons that seem really overwhelming right now. And you know, I really believe, this might sound crazy to you, I really believe that song has helped me be a better father to my kids. The only time Javen amen all night was on country music back there. Thank you, Brother Javen. <laughs> There's a song, My Little Girl, and I loved her first. I've heard sung at weddings. You know those songs? They cause me to think about and appreciate my two daughters more and my children, cause me to focus on my love for them. Not a Christian song, but I, I believe leading me to be a better person in my God-given role as a girl dad. Tiffany and I, again, helpful in my life, Tiffany and I, when we got married, there was a CD of love songs that we played in the car on our honeymoon. Many of those we've never even played with our kids around, but the Bible talks about that relationship between a husband and a wife. There are some songs that wouldn't be appropriate in church, wouldn't be appropriate for me to listen to or talk about with anyone else, but for my wife and me, we're fully persuaded in our own mind that if we're going out on a date to a restaurant, we might listen to some of those songs that are not talking about finding multiple partners and divorcing your wife, but talking about the deep love a husband has for his wife. You'll have to figure all that out for yourself. Here's my challenge to you. My challenge to you is to understand what you listen to do matter, does matter. Some of these guidelines will be subjective. There's songs that, some songs I don't really like that Sammy or Andy who helps on the music team or Ryan or Jay or others really like. And we sometimes joke with each other and I'll be like, That's, that song's so shallow. There's one or two we sing here that Sammy knows. I think I just saw a text come through. I think Sammy might be listening right now because I'm not sure, but I, I saw his name pop up at the top of my iPad. If you're watching right now, Pastor Sammy, he knows one or two of these songs. And I'll be like, that song is so shallow. Why are we singing that? And he's like, man, I love that song. It speaks to me. And, I, and, and then what happens is while he's leading it, because Pastor Sammy is amazing, while he's leading it, I end up putting my hand up and like, I'm like, I love this song too, but I told him it was shallow, so I really don't like this song. And, <laughs> and you know what? There are songs we sing here that aren't my favorite. And there are some songs that I love that they don't love, but they sing because I say I really like our church to learn it. I think it's a beautiful song. We started this series in Romans 14, and we'll finish it here. If you have your Bible still open, I'm going to read one verse, and we finish it right where we started it, Romans chapter number 14. 
The Bible says in Romans 14, verse number 20, I think we have it on the screens. If you don't have your Bibles, I want us to read it aloud together. Romans chapter number 14, verse number 20. What does the Bible say? Paul's admonition. In the areas where good people can land a little differently and both can still be within the parameters of Scripture, here's Paul's admonition. Would you read it aloud with me? Ready? Begin. For meat destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. For meat, what does meat a picture of in Romans 14? The areas where good Christians disagree. For meat, for the areas where good Christians disagree, don't destroy the work of God. You know what happens? We can focus on fighting the enemy or fighting each other. We can't do both. We can focus on fighting the enemy or fighting each other. We can't do both. For meat, destroy not the work of God. Keep your eyes on Christ. Walk through it biblically. I've tried to give you some biblical truth. I've tried to give you some practical truth based on biblical principles. You're going to have to figure this out. But for some of us, some of our music might need to change. Paul tells them in this passage, don't flaunt your liberty that your weaker brother doesn't have on social media and other places. There might be a song, you maybe you have liberty, but I don't think, I'm trying to think, I don't think I've ever posted one of those country songs on, on my social media page, because I know there would be some believers where they would look at, and that would be, and I might someday, but that would, and maybe I have somewhere, but I'm, I'm, and I rarely actually listen to those songs, but there are times, certain events, my daughter's graduation or a special birthday, we're doing a slideshow, and I'll put some of those songs on there, and it'll bring a tear to my eyes. I'm not, that's a very small part of my musical diet, what I would call secular songs that help me. 98% of my musical diet is what I believe Christ-honoring music. But maybe some of us need to take inventory. Is that to the glory of God? Is it causing me to think on things that are pure and lovely and honest and of good report? He tells the weaker brother, don't despise those with liberty. He tells all of us to seek charity and give grace in the areas of disagreement. I think that'll be the end of the series. My goal isn't to get you to see things the way I see them. My goal is for all of us to see these sometimes difficult differences the way that God's word tells us to see them. I hope this series has helped you toward that end. Good Christians at times are gonna disagree. And where the Bible is clear, we agree with the Bible and we can disagree with good Christians. But in some places like me and, and Holy Days, we can give some people some grace and space and they can love God and they'll stand before him and answer for it. And, and, and we can seek counsel and ask ourselves, and maybe for some of you, certain even Christian music, it reminds you too much of music that you used to listen to before you got saved. And so it's not helpful and healthy to you. And for someone else that didn't grow up with that, it doesn't do that to them at all. You're gonna stand before God and answer for what you've done. Can you say, everything I'm doing is to the glory of God? Or is my music teaching me some philosophies that go against Scripture? Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.